0: Hello and welcome to Feminist Fridays, your weekly intersectional dose of self-empowerment and equality. I'm your host, Sarah Liberty, coming to your airwaves from Sydney, and this week we have a guest who is one of Australia's leading career coaches, who's also an advocate for racial justice, social fairness, gender equality and female empowerment. Her name is Wendy Alexander, and she's coming to us today from Melbourne, but was born a woman of colour during South Africa's apartheid. But before we hear from Wendy, we're going to kick off with a track by Major Lazer, featuring Sia and Labyrinth, called Titans, because I'm pretty sure Wendy's work is creating change of titanic proportions.
1: Turn this
0: Welcome to Feminist Fridays. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm great. I'm a little windswept, but other than that, i happy to not be in lockdown. Sorry to hear that you are.
2: Yeah. Well, I was just about to say I'd be happy to be windswept right about now, but I've had my exercise for the day, so I'm housebound.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I wanted to start by asking where you grew up and what your early influences were, because I understand that you were born a woman of colour during South Africa's apartheid. Where in South Africa were you based and what was apartheid like? As someone who grew up in Australia, it's quite a remote concept for me and it seemed almost impossible to believe that it went on for so long, despite receiving significant international and domestic opposition and being condemned by the UN. What was society like when you were growing up and how did that impact you?
2: Okay, so I was born and raised in Cape Town, South Africa, which I call the beautiful city because it has the beautiful Table Mountain. Most people who know Cape Town know it for its magnificent natural landscapes. Mm -hmm. Um, And really, obviously, the first few years of your life as a child, you don't really – Realize what's going on in the country, because you know you grow up in your community and you're playing hopscotch and you're doing all childlike things. Um, and my first, I suppose, encounter with apartheid and what that meant was at the age of seven, when I was um, on a summer vacation with the family, and we'd gone to a place called Gordon's Bay Beach. Mm-hmm. And while we were, you know, frolicking, building sandcastles, doing those kind of things, um, the, uh, the next thing I saw was this pair of shoes, black shoes and navy trousers. And as I looked up, it was um, there were two policemen, and they basically told us that we, we needed to get off the beach. And I mean, I was seven years old at the time, so I didn't quite get what was going on. But I do remember looking at my father and looking at my mother and seeing this tension in them. Mm -hmm. And then I looked. The parents, you know, scurried and grabbed the blankets and grabbed everything and said, we need to go. And, you know, me being who I was, it's very curious. So I'm pestering my father. Why do we have to go? Why can't I play on this beach? And then my father showed me the sign, and there was a sign that said, whites only.
0: Oh, gosh.
2: And so I was like, Okay, seven years old, didn't quite get it, but I knew something wasn't right. You could tell by the way the adults were reacting and we had gone with a couple of family friends. And so the way the adults were reacting and scurrying and scrambling and grabbing blankets and rushing off the beach, um, you know, I knew something wasn't right in that incident. Um, And when we got home, I was nagging my dad to explain to me what happened, but my father was so angry, he couldn't really get the words out. Mm -hmm. but it was the moment in my life that I realized something was not right with my skin color because up until then I thought I had this fancy chocolate skin and I love my chocolate skin. Mm -hmm. But that was the first introduction into what it was like being born with colored skin, black skin, um, and what that meant in that country at the time. Mm -hmm. And then over the years, you know, it, um, you had repetitions of similar scenes you know we couldn't go to any movie house so you know the movie houses the public pools you know water fountains all of those things there were signs whites only whites only i guess it's like living in america south back in the yeah in the 60s or something you know when they were doing the civil rights marches it was kind of like that mm-hmm. um so it was a very stressful um I remember from that moment not feeling like a child anymore. I kind of felt like an adult in a child's body because from that moment, life was always tense, always kind of felt like, you know, you were on the alert all the time. And for my mother, you know, she, you know we were we five children, so my mother had five kids she was raising in that environment, and she was constantly stressed out, worried about the kids because there used to be riots and marches and all those kinds of things going on, and she was always worried about whether her kids would come home safely yeah. so there, there were you know it was there was a lot of civil unrest and violent times and it was a difficult time. it wasn't an easy childhood. Um, look at shape the woman I am i don 't regret my life in any way, shape or form, but um, yeah, I look back on those experiences and know that. It influenced a lot of things, a lot of choices, um, and, you know, obviously created within me the desire to succeed because I remember my father always saying from the time we were really young, you have to work twice as hard. If you want to get a good education, if you want to get a good job, if you want to succeed in this country, with that skin, you're going to have to put in double the effort. So that was the words that was often bandied around. Um, So you grow up with this this tension. Mm. That's the only way I can describe it. Like never kind of feeling free. Like I look at young kids here in Australia and my nephew, I have an eight-year-old nephew. Um, and I look at him and he just, you know, he runs around with this, this freedom. And I look at him often and I think, wow, you know, thank God we're here now. And you don't ever have to know that life, mm-hmm. you know, So it's interesting. It was an interesting time, a difficult time. Um, but it shaped me, you know. I learned a lot growing up in the country about who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do in the world.
0: Mm. I can imagine that must have been like when, you know, I can remember when I first witnessed racism and I would have been in, you know, in my primary school years, probably not much older than seven, and saw an, an Indigenous or a First Nations boy being teased. And I was, it was like, you know, some innocence was removed from my life. So I can't imagine going through it yourself. So um, it's it's really horrifying, but I'm glad that you moved on. So I understand that you moved to Australia at the age of 20 and started to um, embark on a career rising up the corporate ranks. What triggered your move to the, to the other side of the globe, and why Australia?
2: Okay, so um, Australia was on the radar for our family for probably since I was age 12. So my, my dad had two sisters who had moved to Australia. One had, in fact, married an Australian, and then his other sister moved a couple of years after that. So um, he had two sisters. I had two aunts who were in Australia, and they'd probably been here about – one had been here about seven or eight years before we came, and the other sister had been about five years. And so we had been trying to leave South Africa. I mean, I think after my dad was watching, because my mother in particular was affected by this constant worry of whether kids were going to come home safely. I mean, we lost – I lost a lot of friends in what they call the struggle – for liberation in South Africa, you know, friends who were imprisoned, killed in prison, killed on, you know, during the violence that happened with the police brutality and so on. So, you know, we, we saw a lot of that growing up and my mother was constantly worried. And I think my father got to a point where he was, he was wanting to make life a little bit easier for my mom and also for the kids. And so he'd been trying since I was 12 years old, um, And I think, you know, that's where I learned about perseverance because the amount of rejection the family went through, you know, every year you would put in the application, months later you'd get the letter saying, no, you weren't accepted for migration. And you could see it written all over my dad's face before he even told us we didn't get accepted. You know, you just knew as soon as you saw that envelope and saw dad's face. But then um, once his sisters moved here and started to establish a life here, applied on the family reunion or reconciliation basis Mm. and was finally successful and we left South Africa in 1987 and migrated migrated to Australia so it's been you know I've been longer in Australia now than I have been in South Africa Mm. I call myself an Aussie I'm a true blue now (laughs) (laughs) so um but, you know, uh, it, was, it, it was about perseverance in the yeah. end. And I think my father knew he had to leave the country for the sake of my mum's well-being, but also starting to see what was happening, you know. It, as I think when I was 18, 17, 18, my final year of high school, which was 1985, was probably one of the most violent years South Africa had seen, you know. And so school was closed. And we had to – I wrote my final year exams at a military base in South Africa surrounded by soldiers with guns.
0: Oh, God!
2: That, that had an effect because, you know, to this day I'm terrified of guns. Because you just didn't know if anyone did anything or got out of hand if they would just open fire because that was kind of part of your life. Yeah. Fire was always being opened and young kids were always dying um and so i remember being really tense through those exams and i to be honest i have no idea how i got through it because um i remember studying studying schools were closed we didn't have any materials to study with but we had to still write these exams and pass them um it was a super tense time i mean we had teachers who supported us we you know they taught us from their homes Uh, We snuck to their homes and went for lessons there and we managed to get through. But, yeah, Australia was the destination because we had family here.
0: Mm, It's what a journey because when I think about exams, they're stressful enough without having any guns involved. And then when you add that element, um, yeah, I can't imagine, you know, having to, get through that and like you say it's about perseverance and glad you made it here very glad yeah <laughs> yeah me too <laughs> i understand that we have something in common which is a love of words and storytelling and from my experience these skills have proven invaluable to me regardless of the kind of job or role i've been filling how did your love of words originate and how did it lead you onto your Path as a leading career coach.
2: Okay. So love of words, you know, it's interesting. I'm just realizing as I'm telling you the story that my father has had a big influence. In, he's, he's been woven right through the patterns of my life because dad was the one that introduced us to the classics. So he would read Charles Dickens and Shakespeare and Jane Austen and those things to us as kids Um, And my father used to act out, you know, when he didn't just read, he would act out the whole scene for you. And so I was fascinated by storytelling, listening to my father. And I think it was at the age of six that I decided I wanted to be a writer Um, because I I just I was so fascinated by the way dad acted out the stories. I was like, I want to be whatever produces that. (laughs) And I said, I said, who produces that? And my dad says, oh, they're called authors or writers. And I was like, I'm going to be one of those when I grow up. Um, And then as the other thing that influenced the writing was it was an escape mechanism for me. So when I started to notice the environment of segregation, bigotry, apartheid, all of that, books and stories and writing stories and writing poetry became a way for me to deal with it. So I wrote a lot of little short stories in my younger years and wrote a lot of poetry um, as I became a teenager and started to get involved in political activism myself, you know, the poetry became quite dark and angry. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that that written word and that storytelling was always weaving a thread through my life. It was kind of like a comfort and a counsel for me. Um, and then as I – grew up and went through high school, you know, I was always drawn to literature and English literature. And so um, two of my good achievements, and I do remember them well, because I got the highest grade in the class for an essay on Macbeth and an essay on Wuthering Heights. Wow, that's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was like, oh, there's something. I mean, I remember the teacher reading out my essay and I was thinking, uh, did I actually write that? <laughs> um, and she was saying, you know, just your connection to the imagery. And, but, you know, that was books and, and reading for me. I really got, I really dove right into it when I was, when I was reading. Um, and then as I came through um, university, I did my first year of university at the University of Cape Town and started with, you know, my major was English literature, my minor was psychology. And then uh, we migrated during that time after my first year. And so I completed my university degree at Monash Uni.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and, yeah, took took English literature all the way through. So, and was always drawn to writing. And where I started the career and the corporate career, I was the person that they figured out really quickly, loved words, loved writing. And so I was the one that was assigned to write a lot of the project bulletins and communiques when I was in corporate and there was a time even when some of my bosses started to see that I could, you know, I communicated really effectively with words in emails and things like that. And I would often write the boss's emails as well. You know, it, one in particular, he was a Dutch. And so he had a little bit of a challenge with the, with the language. And when he saw some of my communication going out to the team, he started asking me to write a lot of his messaging to the team for the projects we were delivering. So it's kind of always been a thread. And then along the way, um, you know, I used to write my own resumes. I started learning how to do it effectively and started doing it for friends and family. And that automatically led to a path of first resume writing mostly. And then along the way, started getting into the LinkedIn profile writing into, you know, really addressing selection criteria for government jobs. And then on to um, career mastery coaching, which is fundamentally teaching people how to articulate their stories and their contributions that they can bring to a company.
0: Mm -hmm. And I'm wanting to ask you about that. So I've read your bio and I understand you've walked the talk. You've had a um, very successful corporate career. You've won writing competitions. You're a published author and you're an entrepreneur. And now as a thriving career coach, you have a success system and it restores dignity to broken corporate refugees so they live the life they were born to. So I have to confess that although today I work in the human rights and social justice sector, I was probably once a corporate refugee too, who (laughs) realised that my career wasn't aligned with my personal values. Can you tell us more about this success system program, and the types of clientele you have?
2: Sure. So, um, so I always say that the the that journey started for me from my own personal crisis, um, and I often use the phrase "my mess became my success." So, you know, about twenty three, twenty four years ago, my relationship imploded. I was, uh, and I was four months pregnant at the time. The house sold at a loss. My partner declared bankruptcy and I was left with a mess, a massive debt, $50,000 of debt, pregnant and ready to go on maternity leave within a few months. So, you know, panic ensued because I was like, how am I going to clear the debt, raise a child on my own, start all over again? Um, So, you know, after the many tears and the frustrations and the worry and the panic and the anxiety, I got into action and I just I simply started um, writing and rewriting my resume. I started picking the brains of recruiters and hiring managers, would take them out for coffees and ask them questions and started to see that there's a certain kind of language you use with resumes and it, it really comes down to being more achievements focused than writing resumes that are long lists of tasks and responsibilities. I started to see that you need to tell a potential employer what you can offer them. Hmm. And so I started writing my resumes that way. And within six months of starting that research journey, I landed a role um, that jumped my income by forty thousand nice. dollars, and then within within two years, I ended up in PMO management roles and hiring for some of the biggest transformation programs in Australia, and jumped the income to be well above two hundred and fifty k. And I was like, okay, there's a system. This this thing is working. I'm onto something, and I started to just test it, and so I started to help other people. You know. Uh, friends and family, colleagues, and they started to get similar results. And so I developed what I call the happy career system. And it's a five-step process that helps people focus on their own story. So what I've found in coaching is that where people really struggle, they struggle to understand and own their own story and all that comes with their story. Because within everybody's story is – a bunch of gold nuggets around their achievements, or around what they've overcome, or what they've persevered through, and it's those kinds of things that actually make the connection with employers. Mm. And so, um, I got into um, teaching people how to understand their story and um, learn how to sell their story with authenticity. You know, communicate it effectively in you know, sharp to sync documents, but then also coach them for interviews because here's where people fall down is, um, you know, I know how to help them get their their resume looking great and their LinkedIn looking great and so on. But ultimately they're the ones that have to go and do the interview. I don't go into the interview with them. Mm. And so it's about helping people articulate their story, their success, their achievements, and line that up to the requirements of of the new employer. Um, the clients that I work with, I work with everyone from graduates to C-suite professionals, but the majority of my clients come out of what I call the mid-level career professionals who want to move into more senior leadership roles.
0: Fascinating. I, I've i read some of the endorsements on your website as well um, and found one particularly interesting because it mentioned three key things that make you stand out. One was knowledge of the recruitment process, which you've touched on. The second was knowledge of sales psychology and how it influences people. And the third was your experience of making senior hiring decisions yourself. So I understand what the first and second points are. They're quite familiar to me. But tell us more about sales psychology and how it applies to, I guess, getting your, your dream job?
2: So, so most people worry, uh, you know, they, everybody says, I don't want to be a salesperson. You know, sales are sleazy and people kind of talk about it like that. way. But we are all selling something and we are particularly selling ourselves when we go for a job or a dream job. The whole point of landing a dream, a dream job is to be able to sell yourself in a way that connects with your potential employer, so I teach what I call or I coach people in authentic storytelling. It goes back to the story
0: yeah
2: and I've found that the best way to make an impact is through connection, and that means that you've got to be willing to share mm-hmm. some personal side of you as well or bring some personality to the experience because ultimately a hiring person can see from your resume that you have a set of skills, you've got experience. What they really want to know is if you'll use those skills in their company, that's why you get the behavioral type interview questions, right?
3: Mm -hmm. It's
2: to determine whether you'll use those skills in their company. And more importantly, are you going to fit into the company culture and into the company teams and business environment? Um, And that's why I think being human in your interview and using that authentic storytelling to connect is important because here's what I've seen over and over. I've had lots of clients come to me and say, you know, I've gone there and I've done the interview and, and and I haven't landed the role. Uh, And one client in particular comes to mind and I worked with him last year. And he said he actually, after a time because he was so disappointed and so frustrated, he knew he was performing reasonably well in the interview so he decided to ask the people, you know, um, why am I not getting the role? Can you provide me with feedback? And, you know, he said two of the companies he interviewed with were good enough to provide feedback. And they said, you're super professional, you're super slick, but we couldn't connect with you. Mm. And so we worried about whether our team would connect with you. And that was the sole reason you didn't get the role. And that's, why, that's where the authentic storytelling comes. You go back to that again. You make the connection. So when you're talking about authentic storytelling and sales psychology, the two marry. You need to make a connection with people by selling yourself through your authentic story, throwing in some personal anecdotes so people can see that there's not a professional, just a robotic professional behind the person, that there's actually a human being behind the person. Mm-hmm. You know, They want to see that you can connect to other people, that when times get hard, you're going to find a way to work through challenges with people. And that's that's not something that a super slick resume is going to tell someone. It's something that you tell people through how you connect with them. And so I think that that's really that's one of the most important parts of landing your dream role, being able to use your story authentically and connectedly to let people know that there's a human being with human passions, human belief systems, human philosophies, morals, all of those things behind the professional.
0: Mm, that's spot on from what I've, <laughs> you know, what, what I've experienced. I think a lot of people forget to be a real person <laughs> when, they, yes. when, they go, when they go for interviews. And it's not something, you know, you kind of have to find a balance between being authentic and being too casual, because I've certainly Correct. seen that when I've been interviewing People, you can certainly tell by what they wear and their body language, you know, whether they really might respect you as a as a colleague or as a an employer.
2: Absolutely, yeah. everything's a balancing act. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think if you've got too much of the slick professional, you come across as robotic. If you're too casual, you come across as disinterested or devil may care. So it is. It's yeah. a it's a balance between the two. But I think that you need to include both when you're presenting your persona
0: in my career journey one quote that has inspired me a lot is oprah saying you get in life what you have the courage to ask for which i have on my apartment wall along with a quote by anna wintour who's not really someone i aspire to be but i really like this quote it's just people respond well to people who are sure of, of what they want i mean when those sorts of quotes resonate with you?
2: Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I always encourage clients, and I've done it in my own career when I was in corporate, to know what you want. Um, and one of the things I actually have done many times and I encourage all of my clients to do is when, um, when you get to that end part of an interview and they ask you, you know, if, if there's anything you want to ask of them or any questions, I always say to them, tell them, and I've done this many times, tell them that I'm interviewing you as much as you interviewed me. Ooh, that's a good and one. This, and this, has, this fit has to be right for both of us. So for me, when I started out going on that big corporate journey and earning those big six-figure incomes, obviously, it was also the same time I started as a single mom. And so there were two things super important to me. One was to be a present and available mother to my daughter. Mm. And the other was that I needed to make better income, have a really good career because I had a lot of debt to clear. I had a whole life to clean up after that relationship that imploded. And so I pretty much asked for what I wanted. I had a phone call from a, a boss when I was on maternity leave actually asking me to come back early because he needed a project stood up um, and he wanted me to put the team in place and all of those things. And and he said, I know you're still on maternity leave, but I really need your help. And I just saw it as an opportunity. I was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to get to ask for what I want. And I said, okay, I'll come back early, but here's what I want. I'm coming into the office only one day a week. So this is long before COVID and we got to work from home. This Mm -hmm. is – you know, back 20, 22, 23 years ago. Wow. And I said, I said, I'm coming in to do my meetings all on the one day and I'll maybe make it Wednesday. I said, the rest of the time I want to work from home because I know I can actually do this work from home. I need you to give me a trial run to trust me on this because I don't want my daughter in daycare when she's only six months old every single day of the week. Um And I said it's important to me to be able to be at home and to be able to manage and and, and my, my kid was really she was a great baby, so she was always very gurgly and happy, and would just sort of sit in the bouncing it and watch me work, you know, so I knew I could actually do it. but I needed them to 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 come to the party. but I asked it, asked for it, I got it, and that is in fact how I started my career always working. so every contract I worked after that very first one. That was what I negotiated. I said, I need to be able to work from home some of the time because I need to have that flexibility to be available for my daughter, you know, and drop her to school and pick her up from school and all of those things and be able to have dinner with her at a certain time. Um, and so, because I got that throughout my career, you know, I I encouraged um, I encouraged my clients to do the same. And many of them, when they ask, they find that if you ask with reason, mm. and you also participate and go and prove to them that what you've requested of them, they can trust. So you deliver. You know, you set up a precedence for you to be able to continue to have that throughout your career. And that, that was really the career I enjoyed, you know, high-powered, exec career, but done on my terms. Um, and I also took off, you know, eight to 10 weeks a year and traveled with my daughter every year we went somewhere overseas, whatever, you know, all of that was negotiated in the contract because I knew that I didn't want to be a high powered executive working long hours, never seeing my daughter and never seeing the world. So I had my, my, my criteria, um, and so I absolutely agree with that. And the thing is, when you ask for it and you ask for it confidently and you lay out yourself how you think it could go and you ask for that trial run of, of three months, then you do your best to prove that the trust in you was worth it. You'll get whatever you want. So I agree with you. Ask for what you want and be confident about it because chances are you're going to get it.
0: So you've sort of touched on this already, um, you know, how, how you're an advocate for racial justice and social fairness and and gender equality. Um, But I guess I wanted to just, just ask, how do you go about promoting this with your clients and maybe helping them to be conscious of it as well?
2: Well, so, you know, racial justice, social fairness, gender equality, those things were part of my life from earlier years in South Africa already. So as I mentioned, in the teen years I was a political activist, Um, you know, protesting, going to marches, rallies, all of those things. But what I will say about that was that I was very reactionary. And so there was a lot of anger around all of that because obviously, you know, having been through these experiences myself, going through racial bigotry, seeing it in my community, seeing my parents, my family, everyone go through it, I was very reactionary, um, And what I remember about it, not at the time that I was actually doing it, um, but afterwards, as you mature, you start to think back. But I remember feeling very um, stressed. There was a lot of inner turmoil, and I was never really at peace, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm advocating for all of this, but it's done in this reactionary way, in this angry way. Um, As I mentioned, my poetry back then was pretty dark, Mm -hmm. Um, But as I matured, I would engage in discussions with my father in particular because my father started to work in the townships of South Africa, so the black townships, and he was trying to uplift the black community through education so he would teach in these communities. And I remember my dad having these discussions with me and he said, you know, when you're advocating for anything, make sure that you're not driven by blind fury or blind passion you know, always use education um, and gentleness and try to come from a space of peace because he said, you know, hate doesn't drive out hate. Or anger doesn't drive out anger and hate and bigotry. He said, you need to come from that place of peace. Um, and I remember, you know, looking at him like, yeah, he doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, I'm a teenager, I'm a hothead. So <laughs> I'm going about it from that space. But as I grew up and saw, especially seeing, um, you know, violence begetting violence, you know, police brutality, and then people, you know, protesters, you know, fighting the police and young children, you know, getting caught in crossfires, dying. Mm-hmm. You know, I started to see that there was, that there had to be a different way to to do this. And so I started engaging in conversations with people. Um, and I still do to this day. Um so, you know, last year in particular, when um, when the whole Black Lives Matter movement was in a furrow after the George Floyd um, death, mm. I engaged in some uh, very deep conversations with women across the world, particularly in the U.S., but in the U.K. as well. And we ended up exploring this book called Waking Up White by Debbie, Debbie Irving. I don't know if you've read it. No. I Highly recommend it. But she, uh, she speaks about not understanding that unconscious privilege or what it, you know, she thought she was, she said, I used to think I was this good person because she never actually overtly exhibited any bigotry. But then she started to look at the social constructs of just her little city that she grew up in and how some places were available to some communities and not available to others. Mm. And just going through that whole experience, she started to see, you know how things are often stacked against black people from the get go, right? This is in America because she's an American woman, mm-hmm. and so we, a group of us women, decided to have this conversation. Um, and we would we read we would read a passage or a chapter from the book every week, and then have these discussions. And I can tell you, there were moments of incredibly awkward conversations. <laughs> Because it's difficult to not be judgmental, right? I mean, there were times when I would go, I don't want to educate these people. They need to know. They need to go and educate themselves. They can see the injustice in the world. Why aren't they educating? Mm. But then I realized that that wasn't, you know, like my dad had said to me, that's not a gentle way to approach it. And you're never going to be able to influence another person's thought when you make them wrong. Mm. So the only way you actually penetrate is over a period of time and by really creating a listening and an open space, and an open space for someone to come and say, you know, I don't know, or I really don't understand. And even if you're frustrated because you've explained it, you know, 30 times or 40 times to various people in various communities, I think that you always need to make the effort to explain it that one more time to that one more person, because if you can change one mind, you can change many. Very true. Um, and so yeah. that's how I've always gone about the, co- the, the topics of, um, of mm-hmm. racial issues. Uh, you know, even at work when I see inequity, inequality, you know, I've seen bullying at work. I've been the one. I put myself on the line sometimes. So I've been at odds with bosses. Sometimes I've gone, I think on two occasions, I've gone all the way up the HR chains to make sure that certain bullying or racial profiling stopped, you know. So I don't shy away from the conversations, but I don't go at it with any kind of aggression anymore because I've seen that you don't, you know, you just close a mind. The moment you start making someone wrong or accusing them, um, you close their mind and then there's no chance of actually bridging those gaps.
0: So as this is a feminist segment, How has feminism been a part of your journey? And just to be clear, I'm an intersectional feminist and I believe feminism is about equality for all, not just women's rights.
2: Well, so am I. I would call myself an intersectional feminist as well. So I don't subscribe or no longer. I maybe did once, but I no longer subscribe to anything that excludes anyone Mm. Or advocates for one group of people at the expense of tearing down of another, right? So, including men. So, so I call myself an intersectional feminist as well. I've lived through exclusion in so many ways in South Africa, mm. but also in corporate. You know, there was a time in my life, in my early years of corporate, when I was the only female sitting at the table of what I would call the boys' club, mm-hmm. right? And it's difficult um, because one of the things that, that we have to do and hold the space for is to make sure that we keep the emotions in check because the moment you get too emotional, you get branded a certain way. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, men say, oh, she's so emotional, we can't reason with her. And so I always made sure I kept a lid on the emotions, but not a tight lid because I also think that part of being a woman, being a feminist, is about, Owning the emotions too, right? And being and not being uncomfortable with that. That is part of our makeup as well. But you know, I come from a long line of a long lineage of women who are strong and steadfast, who have moved through society, especially in South Africa, in obvious and subtle ways. Mm-hmm. You know, through the service they provided, the stories they tell. The nurturing they do, you know, South African women are very much women who, who pass the stories down, um, you know, advocate in the workplace, and they often quite subtle about it. And then I followed the work of um, I don't know if you've heard of her Helen Sussman was one of the most prominent female political activists in South Africa. She was a white Jewish activist. OK. Who pretty much stood alone against the male dominated Africana National Party. So she held office for many, many years and was the one who tackled gender discrimination, especially against Black women. She befriended Nelson Mandela when she had to go inspect Robben Island, when um, the conditions in Robben Island, when he was held prisoner there. And she advocated on race relations and gender equity and equality until into her nineties. Wow. So she was amazing. If you ever get the chance, look her up. Um, I read and followed a lot of her works and she was kind of a hero to, to a lot of us young females coming through in South Africa, you know, trying to make a difference. Um, And then the other thing I do to celebrate feminism, I actually hold a monthly what I call a monthly sacred circle for women only. Ooh. And we we do meditation. We share what we call our innards. So share from the raw gut part of us as women. <laughs> um, we share in a space that we call the vault. So whatever's said in that circle does not go outside the circle. Oh. Break bread together and we discuss everything from politics to our kids to our challenges in the workplace, all of these things. Uh, and I've been running the circle for probably 25 years oh now. The only time it's ever stopped was when I lived overseas. So I've lived in the U.S. twice. I lived in Los Angeles for a couple of years, and then I lived in New York myself. And that's the only time the circle didn't run was when I was overseas. But the, every time I came back to Australia, the women would get in touch and they'd go, are you starting the circle again? And so it's been going for years. Um, and it's just about celebrating, you know, women. And when when there's full moons, we sometimes, you know, dance under the full moon and and do all of those things just to celebrate being, you know, women, daughters, mothers, sisters, friends, all that makes up womanhood.
0: I need to come to your your circle. It sounds like <laughs> the, fe- the feminist, peaceful version of Fight Club. <laughs> Um, what happens in the circle stays in the circle. Just wanted to ask, finally, where can our listeners find you and follow you and connect with you if they want to inquire about your services or join the circle? And feel free to plug your website and social (laughs) media
2: handles here. Okay, so happycareerhub.com is my website Uh, Mm -hmm. probably one of the best places to find me. Mm -hmm. Um, And then LinkedIn is where I'm really active. um, And that's sort of linkedin.com forward slash I N forward slash Wendy A. Alexander, all one word. And LinkedIn is where I do a lot of my um, pre videos. So I I do a, a, a live most Wednesdays on LinkedIn for about 10, 15 minutes. And and also post regularly there, just tips and tricks for, you know, job seekers, for people who want to change careers, for people who want to level up, who want to negotiate on, you know, better salaries, all of those things. So LinkedIn is where I do a lot of my work and I do a lot of um free information all over LinkedIn. You'll see me. I'm quite prominent on LinkedIn. I found so that's you. probably the best places to find me. Yes,
0: I found you. And you've got over 8,000 followers. There's a lot. Of people that are connected to you. So that's very impressive.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And still, still growing. Um, and I have a lot of people who sometimes just direct message me. They, they see my videos and then that's how I actually get a lot of my clientele. My clientele come from LinkedIn and they come from a uh, word of mouth. So, you know, I've, I've worked with people overseas and at the moment, I'm actually drawing a lot of international clients out of Southeast Asia Interesting. Um, Singapore, China, India is where, you know, my clients are coming from at the moment. But, yeah, I work with people all over the world. And a lot of it comes from people just seeing a video of mine on LinkedIn and then they reach out and say, you know, do you do this and can you help me with that? And I always tend to try and offer them a free resume assessment because I like people to get the feel for how I work. Mm Mm-hmm. And then we go from there. If they want to engage my services, they engage it, you know, otherwise they get a free assessment out of the the, the, the connection.
0: Well, it has been fascinating to hear about your story. So I hope that our listeners connect with you and follow you. Um, so thank you so much for joining the segment today, Wendy.
2: Oh, thank you, Sarah. It was a it's been a pleasure thank you for having me
0: well that has been another fierce episode of feminist Fridays for this week but before you think about straying away I'm going to leave you with a song by Kylie and years and years called starstruck I hope you all have a sparkly weekend my friends I can't help it.